Welcome to Lightning in a Bottle, a podcast series for owners and key stakeholders in privately held companies and the professionals that surround them. My name is Josh Pottinger, and together with Jason Georgianis, we run ATX Wealth Partners here at UBS. Jason and I have been teamed up now for over 20 years, and each of us has over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. Our goal is to bring real-world perspectives to help you prepare yourself, your family, and your business for the day that you decide to monetize some or all of your ownership position in the company. Throughout this series, we will provide our own thoughts as well as interview key people along the way. Feel free to email us at atxwealthpartners at ubs.com. And with that, let's go ahead and get started. So the title of today's episode is The Tax Man Cometh. And whenever the word tax comes up, it comes with a disclaimer that we do not provide tax or legal advice. And so appropriate tax planning is really an essential component of a pre-sale strategy. And liquidity events typically will incur income taxes and some or all of those proceeds may be subject to ordinary income or capital gains tax. And anyway, so it's important to have a comprehensive analysis up front. And bottom line is your situation is going to be very specific to you and your family. So it's important to walk through these ideas with your own tax and legal counsel. So let's get started. Joining us today is Eric Sini. He's the executive director and wealth planning strategist here at UBS, and he is based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Eric's one of our go-to specialists at the firm with a focus on advanced planning strategies, design, and implementation. So welcome, gentlemen. I got Jason on the line as well. Are you there? You get everyone there? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Eric, how's it going? Doing well, thank you. Doing well. Georgia's uh, trying to get us some nice weather here before the end of the year. Very important state at the moment. January 5th is a big day. Indeed it <laughs> is. Indeed it is. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Well, Eric, let's just kick it off here. Give us a little background on yourself and your role here at UBS. Well, first, thanks for having me on. Appreciate the time and looking forward to this. So I've been with UBS just about seven years now. My entire purpose of being here is, since I've been asked to join was to look with clients on estate and tax planning pre-liquidity and business sale opportunities, and do comprehensive financial planning for clients with taxable estates. So most of the time that I spend here is spent uh, working through those issues, really with a big focus on business owners, pre-liquidity planning. Prior to that, I spent some time uh, at a Goldman Sachs subsidiary called Diego Company, and uh, there I was uh, an account manager, but working through all aspects of, of financial planning, also did tax preparation uh, while I was there for five years. And then prior to that, I practiced law here in Atlanta uh, for 12 years. So mm-hmm. been quite the transition. <laughs> That's great. I'm just curious, do you have a general idea on how many cases you worked on this year? The number of conversations is probably in the uh, 500 to 1,000 conversations, I suspect, substantive phone calls with clients. Yeah. So um, it's it's a fair number. Wow. That's a lot of time on the phone. And this year, more more on the phone than, than face-to-face, obviously. For sure. That, that brings up a, a question here. Of all the topics, I mean, if you said, call it 500 conversations, uh, of all the topics you've discussed with business owners that have had or are about to monetize their business, what's been at the forefront of their minds? So, great question. You know, as uh, Jason mentioned, you know, Georgia is a pretty important state now. And the reason, obviously, that's relevant is because of the election. I would say that 
the majority of the time this year has been spent talking through what was the upcoming election at the time. And certainly uh, we're still having discussions about post-primary part of the election and now with, with the Senate race, what are the impacts and, and what should people be doing from an estate tax perspective? Uh, we have really been focusing on, and our clients have been really asking most of the questions around, what's the impact? And first, what was the impact if there was a blue wave? Now that uh, it hasn't quite worked out exactly that way, we're still getting questions of, well, if it if the Senate goes two seats red, what does that mean? What if the Senate in Georgia goes two seats blue? What does that mean? And so we've been we've been having big picture discussions about overall wealth transfer. What's that going to mean from an estate tax and also corporate corporate tax rates, capital gains rates? All those come into play. And certainly with our business owners, many of whom are who are looking at liquidity opportunities over the next couple of years, these things have all really uh, come to the forefront. So. At the end of the day, what we've been focusing on is for those clients who have taxable estates, which for those of you familiar, it's, it, when you look at that relative to the where the exemption is right now, it's at uh, 23.16 million on a combined basis, 11.58 million per person. And what that means is if you're over that in terms of total wealth size, which includes all of your business interests, your real estate, liquid assets, et cetera, then the idea of the planning is still very relevant. Uh, and still something that we've spent a lot of time either trying to finish up what was started or to make sure that we continue down that path. Though I will say that uh, the urgency for a lot of these discussions has has fallen off a bit. And that's just around the sense we've gotten from both the attorneys as well as uh, UBS just kind of looking at what are the likelihoods of, of a significant impact to any of those tax structures that we just mentioned happening. And so while it may be a little bit less right now, and certainly we're all waiting to see what happens to the election, um, the, the need to focus on that is that estate wealth transfer and some of these strategies from a pre-liquidity standpoint are still very, very relevant. So, well, it's going to be obvious by the way we're speaking here. Here we are pre-2021. We're actually doing this mid-December, and by the time this airs, it will be post-January 5th. So all that will have coming down. So in the spirit of that, just backing up for a moment, I think the picture, you're sitting with our clients, the situation is a blank slate in that there's plenty of time to plan. Uh, the, the, the couple owns a significant stake in the business or they're the uh, sole owner of the business. What What is the ideal checklist you help work through to uh, properly address all the individual components of our clients' financial well-being. If you had your druthers and um, it wasn't a pressing, we need to get something done within the next month or two. So it's interesting. We we I know talked you to clients answer about that this. for an hour or two right there. But I could. You said I get two hours for this, correct? So <laughs> I'm going to take that. So if you think big picture and just look at what would the perfect scenario be, uh, we'd be, because we work with so many business owner clients and these are very common questions and and ideas. So what would we do? We would start with the idea of just pre-liquidity planning, looking out two, three, five years with the client and saying, okay, what's our timeline in terms of when we're going to look at making potentially a business transition, meaning are we going to offload or create some liquidity or, you know, either in partial or whole or yeah, in whole to do that? Where does that put us on the timeline? And then looking at that timeline, working through a series of things that we would optimize if we had the chance. So for example, the very first thing we would want to start with is 
understanding clients' goals and objectives, but looking at it in the context of, okay, where are we today? How long is it again? Is that, when, when's that transition coming, do we think? And then what's life going to be like after the transition? And so once we start peeling back that onion a little bit, we start getting to the sense of, okay, I can see where the client's headed. I can see what's important to them. We're going to understand, in many cases, uh, commonly family, very important, obviously. Uh, many times also philanthropy is a big portion of this. And so as we start to talk through the different pieces, we get a sense of, of where we're headed. And so the first thing is just starting out and making sure you get there early because uh, if we don't do that, we really lose the opportunity to bring in all the resources and all the tools that we can to impact things. So, uh, for example, when we have the time, as I just mentioned, to get ahead of this and we start talking about wealth transfer, we have so many clients that want to pass wealth down to kids and grandkids, you know, for example, what's the best way to do that? Well, we have privately held interests and we're looking to transfer some wealth, looking at it today and saying, okay, this, this company's worth X. But in five years, it's going to be worth 10x or 20x or more. Well, that's a big that's a big delta. And the way wealth transfer works from an estate tax perspective, the smaller the number that I want to transfer today, knowing that I'm going to get that appreciation, the more leverage I have. Because if I can transfer something when it's worth x versus 10 or 20 or 50x, I use less exemption. I can do it in a more uh, processed. You know, manner. I get way ahead of, of the entire thing. We can think through it, bring in the right counsel, the attorney, the CPA to help advise on it. And so doing that makes sense. If, you know, for example, it comes to mind, we had a situation uh, actually a couple of years ago where we had a company that was a bunch of owners doing a startup and they were getting a lot of momentum very, very quickly. In fact, they were going through several rounds of funding. And so as they did that, we got to talk to them, I think in the second round it was, and the, the entity was still at a lower, much lower valuation. In fact, uh, I, I knew this because we, we had a touch, uh, touch up about a year and a half later, and it went from their interest was worth, I think, about a million at the time. And we talked about doing some of the wealth transfer planning, and the, the client opted not to do it because they, they said, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to just sort of put this to the side. And it makes sense, but it's still a couple of years away before it's going to be a big number. And we explained to them, We'd rather do this way. Well, the number turned into about fifty million, and that was a significant difference from where it was. And, and if we had been able to get the client to move those assets, as as we had talked through initially, they would have had managed to leverage that small number, which was around a million, million and a half, and made it turn into that big number. But part of it would have turned into a big number in a place outside of their state. And so that's that idea of doing the wealth transfer. We can't put that genie back in the bottle once it happens. It's not that we can't do things after that, but it, you know, in terms of a perfect world, if we can move wealth sooner than later, it's a whole lot easier and the clients can be much happier. Because had we moved a portion of that million dollar interest in advance, say 10%, well, that 10% would have been in, in the business. So when he put $5 million, it ultimately would have turned into $5 million. That really was a big difference. And so we, we were trying to fix it after the fact, but the client even lamented a little bit. You know, I wish, I wish maybe we had thought about this before because now that I fully grasp what we, what we could have done, 
uh, it seems it almost seems silly looking back maybe that we didn't spend more time. But listen, we're, we know that clients get very focused on these opportunities. They get very focused on building their business, and that's what they're there for. And, and all we can do is is provide that education and start to get clients to understand where we're headed. So number one, planning for that wealth transfer. That's a big one. The second one that really, the second ma- major issue that comes in is looking at that opportunity and saying, okay, can we spend time getting educated? We have so many times where clients come in with a sale opportunity and they say, hey, I just got a call out of the blue. Somebody offered me X amount for my business. Well, we say, well, that's a pretty good number. But have you, do you know if that's what your company's worth? Well, no, but I, I really, wow, that's a great number. That was always kind of my number. And so one of the things that we've seen happen is when clients take that, that first call, there's a chance they're not necessarily maximizing that opportunity. So the second wish list item would be getting time to get the clients educated through conversations with our boutique investment banking partners, UBS's investment bank, spending that time going through the process and understanding, okay, if you were going to do a transition, what does it look like? What's a relevant process? Why do the process? Well, the running a process allows you to get multiple bidders, which of course, would you rather have one person bidding for your business or would you rather have two or three? I'd rather have two or three because I think that's going to push the number up. So providing that education on the front end and giving the clients time to digest it and say, okay, how do I position myself now that I know what it could look like? How do I position myself to get ready for that? And that way also helps me resist the temptation when I do get that very nice sounding number right out of the gate. And by the way, when you get multiple offers, you also get to dictate the terms a little bit better. So knowing that in advance is a huge benefit. And so that's that's one, you know, probably check the box number two right there. The third big one, I think relates to charity. And so one of the things that we know is that we do an awful lot when it comes to philanthropy and charitable giving with our clients. We get questions on this every day. And it's it's around any type of charitable trust, different kinds of charitable strategy, what's the income tax, you know, potential impact on these things. But one area where we can maximize opportunity for a business owner specifically is when we know they have a big charitable intent that's going to be associated with that transition. And a lot of times our clients, uh, you know, the wealth is tied up in their business. They keep pouring the money back in the business. And so their, their, their business balance sheet is very big, but they haven't, they haven't taken the money off the table, pulled liquidity out because it just didn't make sense to do, to do so from a business perspective. Well, that client a lot of times is the same one that says, you know, when we do finally sell this, we're going to want to go ahead and, and uh, we're going to do something significant because we have a lot of causes we want to support. And uh, we we really think this is going to be the time when we'll be able to really make that that major impact that we've always wanted to do. And so, uh, one strategy that that fits that bill very well is this idea of giving the ownership interest to a charity as opposed to using cash or, or securities. And the way it roughly works is you would contribute your ownership interest to a donor advised fund, and hopefully do that in advance uh, of the sale. And if you have the ability to do that, the impact versus what we see a lot of times is clients coming to us after the fact saying, oh, I just sold my business. Here's 20 million or 50 million gross proceeds. This, this, we just sold it. It was a great, a great transaction. And we, we agree, this is great. But we, really, we want to give away several million dollars. Okay, well, we can do that. But unfortunately, and we walk them through the idea, if we get you after the fact, um, you, you'll lose some of the leverage. And so here's a quick example of how it works. If I have $10 million the sale of a business, and I know I'm going to give away a million dollar interest because I, I've always wanted to do that. So 10% of, of the overall transition value. 
I can either do it one of two ways. I can either sell that business for $10 million, get the net proceeds, and then give away a million dollars to the charity or donor advised fund or my foundation. Or I can get ahead of that transaction prior to a right around the letter of intent stage, contribute that ownership interest of a million dollars worth to a donor advised fund, for example. I still get the million dollar deduction. But when the transaction actually occurs, instead of paying tax on 10, I pay tax on nine. So because I don't own that million dollars of ownership at the time, right? The charitable entity owns the million dollars. So now I just saved myself the income tax burden, whatever your rate is, on that million dollars. So if we assume, for example, in such something like a capital gain transaction where it's about 20%, I just saved $200,000 per million uh, because I got time to do the planning in advance. So, so bullet number three is that, that charitable inclination. What is it? How large is it? Does it make sense in this context? Can, is this something that we think we can do and, and go through that process? Because if we can get ahead of that, and we can educate the clients, as I said, on, on the sale process, and then we can work on that wealth transfer aspect, we're really getting almost all the bang for a buck out of, out of that entire process. And that's a couple years worth, and it's an awful lot of people being brought into the situation, as I mentioned along the way. But that's kind of that perfect world checklist, Jason. Mm-hmm. It, it really does. If we get our chance to do it, that's when we're winning. And that's when we can really help the clients across many you know, areas. Eric, I think one, one of the things I'll just pop in real, real quick is, is, you know, one of the things that I've, we've noticed is that there is definitely a, a level of maybe uncomfortableness, like before they start giving away all this stuff, you, you know, they want to make sure that they're going to be okay. Right. And so I think that's where the importance of sitting down and running those financial planning models and modeling out a sort of a base case exit scenario and a high low scenario makes a lot of sense. And once they figure out what their quote unquote number is, then you can start doing some of these other really cool strategies. For sure. You know. For sure. In fact, to your point, Josh, uh, if you think about how many times you, Jason, and I have sat in a room and talked through clients with that exact question of, well, how much do you think you want to give away? How much do we need to want, want or need to have access to? And once we resolve that, that actually dictates the strategy. So many times we've talked about spousal trust, for example, versus a children's trust. One way to do wealth transfer is to give it, put into a trust for a child. But what if we say, well, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not going to want to have access to those dollars later on. Okay, well, there's actually several other ways you could do it, but one of which is uh, it fits sometimes with the spousal trust, the spousal lifetime access trust. So to your point exactly, going through the process really makes a difference because we not only understand the client's interest, but we can really help you know, create the path that makes the most sense and really educate the client on the various options that are out there. Right. Basically, to summarize all that, it's like making sure you're personally ready, you've got your goals, making sure that the business is ready and you get that all buttoned up nice and tight. And then obviously the financial goals and those kind of, you know, those are the three legs of the stool that that is important to important to hit. And there's a lot of people that are involved in getting to that point. So I was good. When Eric, when Eric was speaking about things happening out of the blue and having an appreciation for what your business is worth and knowledge is power, just learn early while uh, think well there's not anything on the table time sensitive i was just thinking about one particular situation you know who this is earlier in the year fantastic midwest business actually this is going back to 2019 it closed this year uh fantastic business phone call out of the blue 
And I think the offer was 14 to $16 million. We were caught off guard with it because our client was pursuing that sale. And uh, fortunately, it did not happen. And we had introduced him to um, a, a boutique investment bank, mid-market investment bank, after that deal fell apart. Long story short, we ended up selling for 3x that. $42 million, almost 3x that, $42 million. So there, he did not have a full appreciation of what his business was worth. And on the flip side, there was another situation this year, 2020, where uh, fortunately our, our client certainly had a, a very deep appreciation for the value of their business. They were receiving um, financial sponsor offers, private equity offers, $700 million to a billion. And he just was very staunch in his opinion that you guys are not fully appreciating what I've got here. And lo and behold, instead goes public and now market cap in excess of, of $3 billion. And in both of those situations, though, from a financial planning standpoint, from a pre-liquidity standpoint, even though one was planned, the IPO, and even though one uh, came about kind of out of right field, fortunately, both had gone through the pre-liquidity planning process and had given a lot of thought to this well in advance, where um, all in, from a tax efficient standpoint, from an intentional planning standpoint, in regard to family, it worked out really, really well. So I, I know, Eric, you can... You're just scratching the surface with all of that, but um, how, how do you go about, how, how do you set expectations with clients about time frame? They're coming in blank slate. Okay, take us through this. It, from soup to nuts, how long typically does it take to have everything buttoned up from a planning standpoint and perhaps drafting documents with state attorneys and so forth? How much time should be a lot? Yeah. Great question. You know, it varies, of course, but in a perfect world, if we had everybody's full attention and they were able to actually give us the attention they wanted to, it can take just a few weeks after you go through the planning and, and spending the time learning. But what we find is that it's going to be most likely several phone calls uh, or several meetings, you know, back when we get the chance to actually sit down with people again, several meetings worth of time, working through all the elements doing some of the planning, tying in the financial planning aspects of it. That can take certainly several weeks in reality. In fact, it can take several months sometimes based on people's schedules. Uh, so if you just think about that, just doing the pre, pre-planning and educating piece, it can take six months to a year sometimes to get fully educated across all the things you just mentioned you know, or we've been talking about, right? Not only the, the estate piece or wealth transfer, uh, the, the income tax component, charity and how that plays out. And then just the, the business transition and working with the investment banks, getting an understanding of what, what has to happen there. That can take up to a year, even if the transaction itself, once once you've got your buyers identified, it isn't you know much longer than that. Uh, in fact, can even run a little shorter sometimes. You uh, can easily run several months worth of time. And it's not because it, we're sitting there working at it for several months. It's just because of the way it works out. So giving yourself that that leeway, you know, that, that, that lead time is, is is important because um, it won't happen overnight. There's too many other things that are also going on. Now, on the flip side, if, if we need to get something done because we're in a short window, then we can squeeze it down and make it happen. That takes a lot of concerted effort by everybody, including the attorney and the CPA, but but you can get that down to 
know, inside a month or so, I think, if you really have a specific thing that you need to get nailed down. But generally speaking, these things take multiple touches, uh, it, which is good because we, we want to have time to work through it, let everybody marinate on the ideas that are discussed, not have to make correct decisions right away. So, you know, like I said, I, I think it, it wouldn't be unreasonable to say it can take six months uh, or longer to, to really play through a lot of this in terms of the educational part and then getting it implemented, you know, has its own timeline. So, Eric, I'm going to kind of back up a little bit here, you know, in the spirit of, of, of taxes. When a business owner sells a business, a lot of the business owners will assume that it'll be treated as, as long-term gain, which isn't necessarily so. So maybe walk us through some scenarios where that might not be the case. And yeah, I mean, what, what are your thoughts around that? So it really, it, it's, it's one of those unique things about the transition. And again, it goes back to the, the owner's focus sometimes. Uh, it, it's oftentimes really on running that business. And then when they get in the due diligence, they, they start really cranking down. But point when you get to finally pull them back and they ask that question, uh, we, we are surprised a lot of times clients aren't certain. And it, truth is, it takes some coordination, some significant coordination with, with their CPA. But typically, what we would see is it falls into two camps. If you're doing a stock sale, and you're, you're selling the equity of your of your business. You're looking at it, what's most likely going to be mostly a capital gains transaction. Uh, it, it may be entirely, it might be portion, but it's it's going to be a large part capital gain, which which comes with a you know closer to a 20% rate. And that's typically something the sellers like to see, of course, because they want they want to pay less tax. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side, you get uh, the buyers, and the buyers are looking at this, and they're trying to make, maximize things from their perspective. And so a lot of times they're looking for asset sales. Now it depends on the industry. You know, not a lot of some industries don't don't lend themselves to that asset sale concept. But when you have an asset sale, you're much more likely to have something that looks a lot more like an ordinary uh, an ordinary income kind of event. And it's just because you're you're selling off assets, and it's a different it's a it's a different component. They're moving parts, there's goodwill, you know, the equipment, and any number of other things that go into um, what actually makes up your business. And so. Knowing that and getting out ahead of that as well is so that you can at least have an expectation of which side you're going to land on, I think is important and also important for, for negotiating. Because if somebody comes to you and you're looking for a stock sale and they want to, they want an asset sale, you're good. You're going to change your price because the, the difference is going to be significant if you use the same number against two different tax rates. So clients become very, very much attuned to that as we, as they get into the, into the, uh, the transaction details. Mm-hmm. It brings up another, you know, a topic, which is qualified small business stock. You know, post-liquidity, there's some attractive income tax savings and deferral opportunities if the stock is considered QSBS. Can you kind of give our audience a high-level overview of, of what that is and, and how that can help mitigate tax, tax liabilities? Sure. So qualified small business stock is a great code section if you can if if you're the right entity and the right set of facts. Uh, essentially, so organized under section 1202 of the code, what it allows somebody to do if you are a C corp incorporated after 1993, uh, you have the ability if you can meet some of the other requirements such as the amount of assets that were. Uh, there at the time of the issuance of the stock, the type of industry you're in. So a lot of the service industries get knocked out. For example, healthcare law, those thing, kinds of things are excluded. Banking, insurance, other things uh, also get excluded. But if, if you fall into the category of a qualified business that they're looking to promote under this section, 
then what you have is a really unique situation where you have the ability to exclude or roll over the gain of your ownership interest. And that's a really powerful tool. So if I, if I meet all the requirements, I can roll that gain over into a new opportunity within 60 days. So we've seen some clients look at that as an opportunity. Or, and this happens more often by far, the ability to exclude some level of gain. So for example, anytime up and through 2009, February 2009, you can exclude up to 50% of the gain. And there's some math behind how that works out mathematically, but it's still the ability to exclude some portion of the gain is significant. Mm -hmm. And the gain that they're looking at is capped uh, greater of $10 million or, uh, or 10 times basis, but there's a lot of leeway in there. And so 50% you know, up through 2009, you know, February 2009, between February and 2009 and, and September of 2010, you're looking at a 75% exclusion. And then after September of 2010, you're looking at 100% exclusion. And the ability to exclude, if you think about it, I mean, we're now in 2020. If you can exclude 100% of the gain uh, on a company that you grew over the last 10 years, uh, that's a that's a really, really powerful tool. And so not only that, but you have the further ability to potentially leverage leverage up that gain by uh, use, utilizing, you know, if, if, the, if your wife owns stock uh, or your husband owns stock, you know, if both spouses own own the stock, uh, that's different. If your kids own some stock, that's different. So you've got this opportunity to almost double that piece of it. And so, again, going back to the idea of planning. That doesn't happen overnight because a lot of times we see the owner of the business, whomever it may be, uh, that person owns mo- all the stock in their name and not necessarily in, in both parties' names. Uh, might be separate. Now, you know, in Texas, sometimes we, we get some different things because we've got community property. But even there, a lot of times it's, it's still not uh, the community property aspect of it. It's a lot of times separate. So understanding that we need to do some planning around who owns the stock and, and can we get some leverage by transferring stock to some other people in advance of this far enough away so that the attorney and the accountant are all comfortable that, hey, we, we actually probably can make this work where we get significant benefit, not just the first 10, but maybe even more. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So That's a huge deal. Planning for that is just is critical. So if, 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 you're, a, if you're a business owner that owns a C corporation, I think it, it would behoove you to, to certainly investigate that in advance of when you really think you're going to start looking to sell it, because knowing how that works and then knowing that there's actually some more planning that could be done. You know, Jason, again, back to your, your, your first question, what's the wish list? My wish list is if we could get those clients to do this and think about things before they get that far, we're way better off because it doesn't always work out. And so a uh, perfect example, uh, and actually an example of a couple of things we've already talked about. We had a client, um, not too long ago, about a year and a half ago, C Corporation, and they had a bunch of offers. And actually, this was it started this press started about two and a half years ago. Now that I think about it, first time through, they thought they were going to sell it, didn't get sold. We didn't even have a chance to really talk about the planning aspect because they told us sort of after the fact that they they had thought they had a buyer, etc., and the, it didn't really go anywhere. Fast forward, that opportunity didn't happen, luckily. Again, Jason, similar to the one you spoke of. And so what happened instead was it came back 
and the, the second go around, the the actually managing group talked about the fact that that they were going to look to push this out and sell it. And when they did that, we had the opportunity to, to discuss a couple of things. One was the qualified small business stock exclusion, and the second was that idea of, of contributing some of the ownership interest over to a donor advised fund in advance of the sale. And so, uh, with regard to the qualified small business piece. Uh, one of the people, and we worked with a couple of the people who were tied into this board, uh, one of them took advantage of, of just the one exclusion, uh, meaning for just themselves. Uh, the second person uh, looked at it, and unfortunately, it was a little too late, I think. Well, actually, excuse me, I'm going to take it back. They, it wasn't too late for them to think about it. They decided to try to do it. Uh, I don't remember whether or not uh, they ever had an issue with it, but they, they actually contributed and gave stock to the spouse, and both... Uh, both husband and wife filed for the exclusion on part of that, and they in an attempt to double it up. So, the, sort of the the takeaway from that is, if we'd had time, we we would have felt much more comfortable about how that worked out. Uh, their current their accountant and attorney were were comfortable with it, and so they went ahead and did that. But you had two different scenarios there with this qualified small business stock opportunity, and so we, these things are real. They they're available, but they only work if we have time to really spend time with the client and, and work through what's possible and what they're trying to achieve because it's not always going to work out. Well, what percent of the time are the, um, the folks who are running C-Corps, how often are they familiar with the concept of QSBS? I would say about 50% of the time. And I say that because it, I, I believe it's actually dictated not by the fact that they're familiar with that, with the tax code so much as a lot of the times, unfortunately, we are not way ahead of this discussion, meaning they come to us much closer to the sale and they've already started talking to their accountant or their accountant you know, has suggested it because they knew that they were trying to sell it uh, before we knew. And so I'd say about in those cases, the clients come to us and we mentioned, they go, yeah, somebody brought that up before. Tell me, about, tell me again about that. What is that? So half the time it's like that. And the other half, when we're actually further in advance, most we're the ones doing the educating uh, on that part. And so then you know, we're reaching out and coordinating with with all the outside advisors as well because uh, you know it's a team approach. But it's about a fifty fifty split in my in my experience. The uh, about fifty percent of the time, folks are familiar with the concept. Yeah, no, surprising. I mean, you know, it's surprising that it's not a higher number in my opinion, but it's what it is. Right. Well, good. Well, I think we're getting towards the end here, and um, Eric, any other? Thoughts, comments, Jason? Who are you asked that of me at the end? <laughs> can I ask Eric? Eric, tell us about code 4964-26. <laughs> and if you think it should be... Uh, <laughs> well, Jason, as you know, code section 496 dash, yes, that's very, very important. And if you're not talking about it with your clients, you need to be. <laughs> that's right. You got to check out those uh, canooter valves and those freeway bearings. Tall ball bearings. Tall ball, ball bearings. bearings. Tall ball bearings. Well, hey, uh, Eric, thanks a bunch. You know, we, we covered a lot of ground here, you know, obviously, um, you know, I, I, I kicked it off with a little bit of a disclaimer on 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 the on the tax advice thing. It, it really is so so specific to every single individual person. I mean, uh, all of our clients, you know, have different goals, different objectives, different thoughts on how much they should leave to their kids, how much they want to give to charity, and it 
really takes some good, solid blocking and tackling planning and then getting the right team around you to to um, to put together a game plan. And so I think you brought up some great ideas here in terms of kind of in a perfect world, what would the what, what would the ideal checklist look like um, for, for folks? So hopefully they were taking some notes on that. And um, and um, the qualified small business stock, you know, if, if somebody qualifies for that, that's a, that's an amazing, amazing benefit that, that, that um, can lead to a much more efficient outcome. So, which is what we're all about, trying to uh, create efficient outcomes for these business owners as they transition out of their company. So, Eric, hey, thanks a bunch. You were, um, you were obviously very generous with your time. Um, I know both Jace and I enjoyed, enjoyed our conversation with you and look forward to, to many more. So, thank you. Thank you for having me, Josh and Jason. I appreciate it. Eric, you have a great one. Thank you. Thank you again. Great deal. Well, this is uh, Josh Pottinger and Jason Chorgianis. And remember this, know your options, be informed, and plan early. Until next time, have a good one. On behalf of our entire team here at ATX Wealth Partners, we hope you enjoyed this program. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at atxwealthpartners at ubs.com. And remember this, know your options, be informed, and plan early. Until next time, take care and be well.